Okay, let's bow our hearts. Father God, we just thank you for your wonderful word. And Lord, we thank you that it instructs us and teaches us. It challenges us. And Lord, it changes us. And Lord, this morning we pray that your word would just speak to us. That we would be changed. We would be transformed. Your word speaks of being transformed by the renewing of our minds. And Lord, we recognize that that renewing won't come from any wisdom that we can obtain or glean or learn from this world. It will only come from you and from your word. And so, Father, as we study these things this morning, we pray you speak to us. Lord, just give us a greater love for Jesus, we pray. And Father, may we let everything else that clambers and seeks to gain our attention, may we let those things just fade away. Lord, as Paul said, may we count those things as rubbish compared to the excellency of knowing Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, just take this time, take my words, Lord. There's so many things that could be said, but we pray, Lord, the things that you once said this morning, Lord, I said that our lives would be edified, enriched, encouraged, that we may be those light bearers you've called us to be. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So we continue with our study through the book of Revelation. First thing I want to just remind us of is what we looked at a little bit in the, the, our opening session, this myth that's been propagated that the book of Revelation is too hard to understand. You know, and it's so many people you would talk to about Revelation, and they'll, they'll, oh, you know, it's almost like, you know, you take your car to a mechanic, and it's that kind of, kind of response. And it's, it's, that's somehow people have that mindset when it comes to, to this book, and yet it's a wonderful book. And this lie has been propagated by Satan that it's too hard to understand, and, you know, the idea, well, there's too much imagery and mystery, and we can't really understand it. You know, but as we looked at in the opening verse of the book itself, we're told that God has given this book, we're told, to show unto his servants the things that must surely come to pass. And he sent and gave it to us in signs, literally is what it says. He, he signified it by his messenger. The word in the Greek is angelos, it means messenger, who gave it to John. And we've commented already that that messenger isn't an angelic being, as we would think of. It's one of John's fellow brethren, it's a, it's a, someone who was a prophet, um, and we can speculate as to who that might be. We suggested in the first session uh, who it could possibly be, but that's irrelevant to a point because all we know is that it is a messenger. It's somebody who was just a one of John's fellow brethren. So it's not an angelic being um, who we have there. But that person, whoever he was, then gave this revelation that had been passed down from God to Jesus to this messenger and then passes it on to John who records it for us. But again, the reason is that we would know. It's given to us that we would know the things that are coming to pass. And yet, of course, we must remember that this book is a book of prophecy. So the things that we see here are prophetic. Now, that means that they're going to have probably a literal application, uh, a local application, but also a prophetic application. And we see that a number of times through Scripture. I just want to um, draw your attention to some rules of interpretation. Now, various um, commentators have suggested some of these rules over the years. Um, this is drawn from Arnold Fruchtenbaum, um, a very, very good uh, Bible scholar. The golden rule, in essence, is simply this. That when the plain sense of Scripture makes common sense, seek no other sense. Therefore, take every word at its primary, ordinary, usual, literal meaning, unless the facts of the immediate context studied in the light of related passages and axiomatic and fundamental truths indicate clearly otherwise. 
In other words, just take it as it says. Yeah, and as we go through the book of Revelation, it's not that hard when we do that. We're told quite clearly a number of times things were like or they were as, and they were given a description to try and help us understand it. Well, another one that is worth us making a mental note of is the law of double reference. Now we see this throughout scripture. This law effectively states, uh, observes the fact that often a passage or a block of scripture is speaking of two persons or two different events that are separated by a long period of time. Now a number of times in the Old Testament we find that given. We find it particularly in Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28. Uh, It's a portion that talks about their Satan. Ezekiel 28 particularly, we're given there a, a description of the king of Tyre. And yet... No doubt it was referring and detailing the king of Tyre, the literal king who existed back in time, but it was also speaking clearly of something that was beyond the scope of just the natural realm. And it speaks of a being who had his existence in the Garden of Eden and every precious stone was his covering and so on. That doesn't apply to the king of Tyre. So the same passage referring to two different things. uh, And God so often does that. Uh, We have, in a sense, a model in advance of something that would come in the future. So we shouldn't be surprised to find those things as we study the book of Revelation. Another law that's kind of worth worth mentioning, and these again, these are a man-made uh, attempts to define some of the things we see. So they're not talking about spiritual laws as such, um, but they're just good guidelines for us in a sense. But another one is referred to as the law of recurrence. And it says this law describes the fact that in some passages of scripture, there exists the recording of an event followed by the second recording of the event, giving more detail to the first. And that's a number of times we find that in Scripture. And certainly as we go through Revelation, a lot of what we read in the book is chronological. That means it follows on sequentially in order of time. But then there are portions that kind of jump back to the beginning, and then we get a bit more clarity about a certain aspect or certain thing. So be be mindful of those things as we go through. And actually the context itself, you'll see, uh, helps us to understand where all these things fit in. So it's not uh, a complicated maze that we can't figure out. And we said before that in the book of Revelation, we've got 404 verses, and yet there's about 800 allusions to the Old Testament. So we'll see so much of this is drawn from Scripture already. And if we know the Old Testament Scriptures, when so much of Revelation will make a lot of sense to us. One of the biggest topics in the Bible is this theme of the Day of the Lord. And that's something that we find repeatedly talked about by the Old Testament prophets, and it's speaking of the events and the days in which Revelation will be looking as we start to move forward. But we are given this divinely inspired outline. John is given this commission, and we saw at the end of the the study last week in chapter 1, verse 19, John is told to write the things thou hast seen. Now at this point, that would be the vision of Jesus, which John has recorded for us in chapter 1. It says, and the things which are. Well, the things that John is about to record for us, we're going to look in chapters 2 and 3 over the next couple of weeks. Uh, Lord willing, we're going to start to see the churches that John has been told to write to. They were things that existed in John's day. And yet we're going to see there's a prophetic application there as well. And then the final thing that John is told to write is, and the things which shall be hereafter. And that will encompass the most of the book from chapter 4, verse, uh, chapter 4 up to the end of chapter 22. They're the things that are part of this vision that John sees as he's kind of brought forward to the day of the Lord. So, just to give us that kind of outline. Now, we saw back in chapter 1, verse 11, Jesus speaking, I am the Alpha and Omega, the first and last, and what thou seest, now speaking to John, write in a book and send it unto seven churches, or the seven churches, 
which are in Asia. Now, these are real churches that existed in the first century. And we'll talk a bit more about these as we go through the next couple of weeks. Uh, we're given the names of these churches. Ephesus, we're familiar with. A uh, very well-known church, founded by Paul, later seemingly pastored by Timothy. Following that, John seems to have been the pastor there. Uh, then we have the Church of Smyrna, not a church that we're probably very familiar with. Or the Church of Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Now, Laodicea was twinned with Coloss, and we're familiar with the letters that Paul wrote to the Colossians. Um, but these other churches were not really very familiar, so the question, of course, is asked, you know, why these seven? Well, seven in Scripture, again, always refers to complete. So there's something complete about this revelation or this vision that John is seeing or the information that John is going to be presented here. But there seems to be far more than just that. Now, there were, some have estimated, up to a thousand different towns in this region of of Asia Minor at that time, and many of them would have had churches. So why just these seven? Well, clearly God has chosen these seven for a very specific and very um, explicit reason, Uh, and that's something we'll explore as we go through a little bit this morning. Now again, just to see, this is the area geographically, I suppose this is a bit blurred, we'll uh, address that, but this is the area that we're looking at on the, the coast of Turkey and the southwest coast, really, and then these few churches further inland as well. Now, there's four levels of meaning that we can see. As we said already, they sometimes passages of Scripture can uh, apply on more than one level, and that's certainly the case here. And this is given to us in the, the text itself. Clearly, these are real churches that Jesus is writing to. And one of the interesting things is that many of the people that study scripture are familiar with the the letters that Paul writes to the churches, but people seem to be ignorant that Jesus wrote to seven churches. And there's a lot of lessons that we can learn. There's a very real practical local application. But there's a personal application, as we'll see, because we're told that these letters are written to whoever has an ear to hear. You can just check if you want, but I think we'll find that's you. If you have an ear this morning, then these are addressed to you as well. As there's a personal application of the things that are written here. And then clearly there's a message for all churches because we're told, um, he that has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches, plural. So these messages were to be to all churches. Now it's interesting that within the group of churches that we have, there's been a kind of a, a circuit very much around them and it would be very easy to pass these letters one to another. And no doubt that's what would have happened in the, the first century is these Letters arrived at the various churches, and then they got passed around, and then different lessons would have been drawn from each of these things. Although there was a very specific application to each church that's addressed, there's a lesson in all of these uh, letters that are given to all churches, and I would say for all churches of all time. And so, at least three levels of meaning, but then there's another level of meaning which I want to talk about a little bit to start with this morning, and that's the prophetic. Now, at this point, a lot of people start to get a bit edgy and say, well, I, I don't know that this really this applies, because some commentators and scholars will tell you that they believe this refers to seven, or these churches, in the order they're in, refers to seven distinct church ages. Now, some will say, well, you can't make seven church ages, and you know it's too narrow to do that, and they come up with all sorts of objections as to why not. But the, the, the real issue here is, if you find a key on the ground and it's by a, a gate in a garden, for example, the only way you're going to know if that key fits is if you try it. And the, the reality is that when we look back through history now, we can see that the details that are given to us in each of these churches do fit, 
with incredible clarity, historically, events that have taken place. And so we'll start to see that there's definitely a a plan. It's too much of a coincidence for these things to be the case. And we shouldn't be surprised because, if you remember, back in verse 3, we're told that this book is a book of prophecy. So we shouldn't be at all surprised that, that these churches that are written to, it wasn't just a local thing. Of course, that is applicable. But it was broader than that. It was looking at something much bigger than that. And so it seems to lay out the history of the Christian church. And it's really incredible as we start to, to go through and unpack those things. Now, <clears throat> we see in the Bible we have this uh, heptatic design. It's just a fancy word. means sevens, really. Uh, things are rendered into sevens. These are seven letters that we have here in Revelation 2 and 3. I've mentioned the names of those churches already. But we also find that there's seven churches that Paul wrote to. Now, Paul wrote more than that in terms of just letters. But there's seven distinct churches that Paul wrote to. He wrote to some individuals, Titus, Timothy, Philemon, and so on. But if you actually count the number of churches, and of course, Corinthians is one church, although there was two letters, you actually find that each of these locations of these churches in Revelation 2 and 3 correspond to the letters that Paul wrote to those specific churches. Geographically, there's some similarities and there's some tie-ups between them for a number of reasons. And we'll go through, we'll look at that maybe next week in a little bit more detail, how they correspond to each other. But we also find back in Matthew chapter 13, and for those of you that were with us a couple of years back, we went through the Gospel of Matthew. There's seven parables given to us in Matthew 13. And it also seems to be that in the order those parables are given, they also map out church history. And so you see that God has revealed something that previously was hidden, and that's exactly what Scripture says. Jesus spoke about the parables when he was quizzed by his disciples. Why do you speak in parables? He didn't say, oh, just to make nice Sunday school stories. He said the reason he spoke in parables was to conceal it from the wise and to reveal it to those whom he wanted to reveal it to. And sadly, a lot of people get confused by the parables because they are made into nice Sunday school stories. And we get this story of the um, birds of the air lodging in the, the branches of, and so on. And people paint such a lovely picture of these beautiful birds. But if you look at the details, it's not a good thing. In the context, it's talking about the ambassadors of Satan that are lodging in the branches seemingly of the church. That the church grows to be something that it should never have been. And historically we know that's true. You know, where was it that, that God said that the head of the church should also be the head of the, the world government? And yet, that's exactly what the Roman Catholic Church tried to do. To make the, the Pope the head of the world government and the head of the world church. Of course, that started before Rome itself, or the Roman Catholic Church. It started with Rome, with the various emperors of Rome, and particularly Constantine and so on. And we'll talk more in weeks to come about some of these things. But the church took on some sort of political responsibility, which was never intended to have. So, we see, again, with those parables in Matthew 13, um, there's this plan laid down before us of the church. And, of course, the church was something that was hidden in the Old Testament. Paul makes that point for us in the book of Ephesians, that the church was concealed, but now it's been unveiled. And again, in the order they happen to be in, it just happens to be that the the key fits the lock. So that's a good indication that we're, we're on the right path here. But I want to take you through something even more 
incredible. And this is something you may not have seen before. But there's also seven distinct ages for the nation of Israel that also map out, surprisingly, the history of the Christian church. And we'll go through. Let's talk about Israel first, and then we'll see the parallel and the comparison. First of all, Israel as a nation, effectively, doesn't really begin until the time of the Exodus. You know, they go down, Jacob and his family go down into Egypt. But by the time they come out of Egypt, they've become a nation. And there's various estimates ranging from two million or or upwards. But, you know, there are a great multitude of people. And God really uses Egypt as a kind of incubator, in a sense, to allow the, the nation to grow in protection. It's exactly what God says to Abraham, because he didn't want them to stay in the land, because the iniquity of the Amalekites wasn't yet complete. Remember those giant tribes that were in the land that Satan had brought in to try and destroy God's plan? So God removes Israel from the land until they're large enough as a nation to be able to go back into the land and defeat those tribes in the land. But Jeremiah chapter 2 reads this way. It says, Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Go and cry in the ears of Jerusalem, saying, Thus says the Lord, I remember thee, the kindness of thy youth the love of thine espousals, when thou wentest after me in the wilderness and in a land that was not sown. Jeremiah, kind of lamenting in a sense over the state of the nation at this point in in the history this is going, when Jeremiah is writing, it's just leading up to the Babylonian captivity. But he's remembering back to the early days of the nation. And he speaks of this love of espousal. That's exactly what Israel had. It was like they were joined to the Lord. They were married to the Lord. And in a number of other portions of the Old Testament, we find that's the case. Now, Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 14 will tell us that they spent two years at Sinai, but then they spent 38 years. So really, from that point, there was 38 years at the beginning of the nation. And they spent that time kind of wandering around the wilderness until finally they came into the promised land. But then they get into the promised land, this time under Joshua. But it's a time of victory. I mean, it's a, you know, if we were picking out a plan for our own lives, we would probably omit the, the things like Joshua had to go through, the battles he had to fight. But it was a wonderful time where people were seeing the Lord deliver them. I mean, imagine the, the feeling, the, the, uh, the elation of the children of Israel as they march up against Jericho. You know, for seven days they've been going around, marching around the city in silence. You know, you imagine the, the people of Jericho looking over the walls thinking, what is the matter with these people? You know, in silence, they're just going around and they go back home again. The next day they're going to come out and march around. You know, we, we, we hear the account of Rahab that she had talked about the fact that the people of Jericho were so fearful of what Israel were going to do. Well, then we get, of course, to that last day. They go out and seven times on that one day they go around and then finally they blow their trumpets. The walls come tumbling down and Israel go in and they get this incredible victory. Now, Jericho was a big, prominent city. And we get this wonderful victory. And we see it repeated time and time again through the book of Joshua. This victory through a time of war as they enter into the promised land. But then we get to one of the darkest times of Israel's history, the time of the judges. What happens? Well, they start embracing the world. You know, there's so many times we read in the book of Judges that God gave them over to the nations of this world, the nations surrounding them, that they would learn lessons through the 
harsh treatment through the bondage that were being brought into by these other nations. And we read various ones, Moab being one of the ones we're familiar with, but a number of these other nations around them. And so we see these judges that God raises up through that time. But it was really their complacency that had brought about this defeat. Proverbs 29 verse 18 basically says that where there is no vision, the people perish. The people had got into the land, they were happy, you know, the victory had been won effectively now. Yes, it was a a difficult time through that time of Joshua. And maybe at the time they didn't see it as victory and they had, you know, everything was being wonderful. But they look back and they see that they've now been given this wonderful land, a land of milk and honey and so on. But then we get to that time of complacency and they end up embracing the world. But then we get to the time of Samuel. Samuel, one of the last judges. And he's distraught because the people come to him and ask for a king to be like the nations around them. And Samuel's like, but God is your king. And God has to speak to Samuel and say, look, do what they ask. Because they've not rejected you, they've rejected me. So, this then brings around this rejection of theocracy. The rejection of God's rule over the people. And of course, Saul becomes the nation's first king. It wasn't the right choice in essence because they should have waited. God already had it planned that they were going to be given a king, but that king was to be David. But we then follow on from that period of time, the period of this rejection of God as their king. They wanted a man to rule over them, to be like the other nations. And we then come to this time of the division of the kingdom, brought about because of Solomon's apostasy. And we find the nation splits into Israel and Judah. But the incredible thing is that whilst Israel, and we studied this recently, we went through the book of Kings, and we looked very much in detail about Israel's idolatry and the wickedness in the land. But God speaks harsher words to Judah than he does To Israel. Jeremiah 3 verse 11, Israel were actually commended for some of their good works. And yet, in Jeremiah 3 verse 10, the preceding verse, we find that Israel, uh, sorry, that Judah are actually uh, told that they were worse than Israel because Israel had gone astray. Judah should have seen it and learned from those mistakes so they didn't follow after them. But Judah followed after those mistakes and even did worse than their wicked sister, Israel. And so this divided kingdom and then this this real problem between them. As a result of that, we then get to this time and the time of Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel and so on, where judgment was foretold. In fact, it had been foretold really from the time of Moses onwards. But these prophets the Lord brings to speak very specifically about the judgment that God was going to bring on the land. And he made it very clear that the faithful were to go to Babylon. They weren't to reject, they weren't to try and stay in the land because that would have been rebellion against God. And yet some of them decided that's exactly what they wanted to do. You see, the faithful were taken away and they were protected in Babylon whilst God brought his judgment on the land. And for those that remained, who did their own thing, well, they found themselves under the wrath of God. Jeremiah speaks very much about the judgment that was brought upon the people that chose to stay. Well then we get to this judgment itself where the apostates, the false prophets that have been in the land were all destroyed. You see there have been prophets that have come along saying peace, peace. 
Yeah, God's not going to bring judgment. This is Jerusalem. How could God bring judgment on Jerusalem? And they were very cruel and wicked towards Jeremiah, who was speaking on God's behalf. They were saying that Jeremiah was lying and was just trying to discourage the people. And prophet after prophet, false prophet, was just raised up to speak lies to the people. Telling them that there's going to be peace and safety. And yet, while saying those things, allowing all sorts of iniquity to flourish. Well, eventually Jerusalem was burned with fire. Those that had listened to those false prophets that had stayed in the land end up being judged. Now, you see there we've got seven distinct periods of time from Israel's history. It's a very simple, clear division of the the major component parts that make up the history of the nation of Israel. There is an eighth, of course, you're familiar that we said already, seven in scripture refers to completeness, and that is the complete history. But there is eight, of course, which means new beginnings. And the interesting thing is, there is a time yet to come for the nation of Israel, where the faithful returned from Babylon to inherit the land. And they ended up building a temple in the land. It's referred to in the books of Haggai and elsewhere, Nehemiah, and so on. But the Lord speaks to Haggai and says, speaks about the glory of the temple that will be built will be greater than that which had gone before. Why? Because the Lord himself would come and speak and visit this temple. And that's exactly what happened. The Messiah came. And this temple that they rebuilt when they came back into the land after the Babylonian captivity was the temple that Jesus came and visited. The Messiah himself. I mean, rather than just having these artifacts and things in the, the temple, the menorah and having the the incense altar and the table of showbread, and all of those things in their own way speak of Jesus. They had God manifest in the flesh. Better than anything that could be made to represent God, God was there in their midst. That's why the glory of that temple exceeded anything that had gone before it. So that is the, the history of Israel. Now, let's look at that in regard to the history of the church. Well, the church begins with a time of espousal, and we'll speak this in a moment. The first letter that is written by Jesus, these letters to these seven churches, is the letter to the church of Ephesus. The name means darling. It means really effectively this espousal. It's the same idea. The church began with the same type of relationship that Israel had begun with. Israel had that relationship with God, but the church has this relationship with Jesus where we are joined together, looking forward ultimately to our wedding day. Now interestingly enough, from AD 32, which is when I believe the crucifixion and resurrection took place, and there's a number of good, compelling reasons for that. From that year up until AD 70, when the temple was destroyed, we have a period of 38 years. Is that just a coincidence? I don't think so. Let's carry on. Because the next church that we're going to go on and see in our study is the church of Smyrna. Smyrna, name comes from the root word meaning myrrh, speaks of suffering. Now, as we'll see when we get on to look at the letter, the church of Smyrna may have thought they didn't have a lot going for them. But God just speaks very highly of that church. You know, one of the the interesting things as we look at all these seven churches in Revelation is they all had the wrong impression of themselves. Which should be a lesson for us. But Smyrna thought they weren't doing all that well. They were going through this terrible time of persecution. But all how the church grew during those first few hundred years. 
As the Christian church was being persecuted by the Romans and by the Jews and by anybody else that came along, the church was growing. It's been said before that the blood of the martyrs was the seed of the church. These countless lives that were given in obedience to serving Jesus ended prematurely, but it made the church strong. Well, then we get on to a time historically when we know that Constantine comes along, the Roman emperor, and he legalizes Christianity. He doesn't make it the state religion. It's the emperor that came after him that did that. But Constantine effectively said, well, okay, it's all right to be Christian. Now, at this point, we get to a very interesting situation. You see, the next letter in our journey through in Revelation will be the letter to Pergamos. The name means mixed marriage. And at this point, we find just as happened with the children of Israel, as they embraced the world and they moved away from God. So the church did the same thing. You see, ever wondered where we get all these wonderful buildings from? With this lovely stained glass and these altars and all the kind of things that you see, the robes that priests wear and everything else, where did that come from? Do you read about it anywhere in the Bible? You see, those ideas came from the pagans. But all of a sudden, the pagans suddenly became the ones in the Roman Empire that were frowned upon. The Christians were now seen as the the new religion in a sense. And so the Christians started using and being handed over these pagan buildings. It's just a fact of history. But as they started doing so, to keep the peace, they started adopting some of these pagan ideas. Ideas like celebrating Saturnalia, or what we refer to today as Christmas. You see, there had already been this worship of mother and child that had gone way back to Babylon, nothing to do with Jesus and Mary. But of course it was so convenient that the pagans already worshipped this idea of of a mother and child and this one that had supposedly come back to life again, being Nimrod in historical sense. And so the Christians then have their story in a sense about Mary and Jesus and Jesus coming back to life. Well, we just merge all these things together. Because we have Easter. The name itself comes from Aishtar, a pagan goddess. And we find these ideas all start to be merged together. The church becomes married to the world. Just as with Israel, they'd embrace the world, so the church now did exactly the same thing. And by the way, that verse in Proverbs applies again. So we then move on from that time of complacency, time of marrying the world, to a time of rejection of God's rule. In Israel's history, of course, it was the rejection of God as their king, and that's when Saul comes along. But in terms of church history, we move on. The next letter that Jesus writes is to the church of Thyatira. The the name means continual sacrifice. And you see even entwined in that the whole idea that we have within the Roman Catholic Church of this transubstantiation, the idea of the Mass, where the body and blood of Christ are continually offered, a continual sacrifice. Well, the writer of the Hebrews makes it absolutely clear that it was done once and for all. There's no continuation of that offering of Christ. Christ died on the cross. He cried out on the cross, paid in full. All done. But you see, at this point, rather than just having us accountable to God, suddenly we have a man put in place of God. We're told in Scripture that there is no mediator except Jesus Christ. But suddenly we have the Pope who adopts this title of Holy Father. And my Bible tells me that we should call no man Father but God. 
Suddenly the Pope is the one that is given the power to forgive sin. Really? Some 900 years in to history, and Mary becomes sinless. So many other things are, are brought in. But the real issue is that it, the idea of God being sovereign and ruling directly over us is removed and we suddenly have a man to rule over the church. Just as it happened in Israel's history. We then move on from there and we get to the division of the church. You see, we get to the situation where we have this Catholic and Protestant situation. Of course, this brings us up to the time of the Reformation. But just as it happened in Israel's history, so now happens with the church. But incredibly, we find that in the letter to Thyatira, if that seemingly is speaking of the Catholic church, they're commended for their good works. Well, it's no secret that the Catholic Church has done a huge number of good works throughout history. And yet, the Protestant Church, seemingly represented by the next letter, the, the letter to the church at Sardis, for a start, the, 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 the idea is that they have many names. Well, that's what we have with the denominations. Lots of denominations. But the church at Sardis, there's nothing good spoken of it. In fact, we're told these works were not perfect. In other words, not complete. And what do we find at the time of the Reformation? Well, there was lots of good things that happened. Of course, we recovered this idea and this doctrine of being saved by grace alone, in faith alone, through Christ alone. But so many other things were left undone. The whole teaching of Christ's return was largely ignored. The teaching about Israel's place in God's plan was pretty much ignored. Even people like Luther, as good as he was in many of the things that he said and taught, remained very much a heater of Israel. And so the Protestant church should have learnt from the mistakes the Catholic church made, but seemingly it didn't. And has ended up bringing in all sorts of idolatrous practices. You don't need to look at the state of the church today to see the, the real fruit that's been born. You know, you can find all sorts of comments by all sorts of clergymen, and seldom do they really speak about God. They've got into churchianity rather than Christianity. Of course, just as it was in Israel's day, the judgment was foretold on both Israel and Judah. Well, the same is spoken of in Scripture. In 2 Peter chapter 2, we're told that judgment that is coming will begin with the house of God. We're told in Matthew chapter 13 that before the Lord returns, he's going to separate the wheat and the tares. By the way, the wheat and the tares, the wheat, that which is planted, that which should be in the field, but the tares grow up alongside it. They look identical. The only way you tell is at the time of the harvest, the head of the wheat, because it's heavier, bows its head. The head of the tares stands up, almost as if it's proud and tall. But then we find that The tares are gathered into bundles first. What do we see going on in the world today? Just that. And then we find the wheat are gathered into Christ's barn. That's what Jesus himself says in Matthew 13. Well, the church of Philadelphia are given an express promise to escape the judgment that is coming upon the world. It's a church that is characterized, as the name Philadelphia means, by brotherly love. Getting back to... The root of scripture, the, the core foundation of the church, that is everything was founded on this love for each other and love for God. Isn't it interesting? That's what God has been teaching us as a fellowship recently. 
that we should have this love for each other. And our love for each other will naturally bring about a greater love for God. And our love for God will bring about a greater love for each other. So this Church of Philadelphia, a promise that they will not have to go into the time of tribulation. Well, even on these things you start to see, there has to be a prophetic overtone to these letters. Because it deals with concepts and ideas that didn't apply in the first century. But then we get to that time when the apostates and the false prophets are destroyed. The church of Laodicea seemingly representative of that. You know, Matthew chapter 7 Jesus spoke there of people that would one day say, Lord, Lord, and he would turn around and say, I never knew you. And we find that a number of references speak of this false church, this church that has grown very proud, thinking it has need of nothing. And we'll look at these details as we go through the letters in subsequent weeks. But this church is eventually destroyed. Revelation 17 and 18 give us the final destruction of a one-world church. Once all religions have come together, not just what the, the remnant of Christianity, the apostate church as such, but all religions will bring or will be drawn together, quite possibly under the banner of the Catholic Church. We'll talk more about that later in our study in Revelation. Chapter 12 of Revelation is very interesting, some of the things that it suggests and alludes to in regard to that. But it's no secret that the Catholic Church is calling for a one-world church of which it wants to be the head. A couple of weeks ago, we saw that video that the Pope has released now, saying that we all worship the same God. That's not what my Bible says. So there again, we have our seven distinct ages. So these letters seem to fit in very clear parallel to the ages of the history of Israel. But then there's the eighth one as well. And just as it was for those that had returned from the exile... The faithful ones return to inherit the land and the temple was built, the Messiah will teach from. Well, so we find just the same because Isaiah chapter 2, 2 and 3 and many other scriptures speak of the fact that the faithful, those that have been taken out before God's wrath had been poured upon this world, will be brought back. They will return with Christ to the second coming and another temple will be built that Christ will teach from. I mean, these parallels are breathtaking and God has worked them throughout the history of the nation of Israel and of the church. So you start to see the reality of the prophetic overtones of these churches. Once again, Ephesus, that love of espousal. Smyrna speaks of that time of suffering. Pergamos, when they get this mixed marriage, marriage with the world. Thyatira, continual sacrifices. We suddenly find that a man is appointed as head over the church rather than God being director's head. Then Sardis, the name means remnant. Philadelphia, the church of brotherly love. And we, we all like to see ourselves as being there, but Laodicea finally, the rule of the people. But I want to remind you again as we go through that every one of these churches is applicable to each of us because there are things here that will pull at our own heartstrings, things that, that, that the Lord Jesus has written to you and I. And not just individually, but as a church as well. There are things in all of these letters that we can learn from. That's why we will study them all. And yet I want you to be sensitive to the prophetic implication that we see here. And as I said, in the order that they're in, they do foretell the history of the church. And as I said, are an echo of the history of Israel. We're not going to go into detail this morning into 
chapter 2, but I just want to start by having a quick look at the letter to the church at Ephesus. There's not much there today. That's the remains of one of the temples in Ephesus. There's a lot in scripture about the church at Ephesus, and we'll talk maybe a little bit more next week. Paul met with the elders of the church at Ephesus on the beach of Miletus toward the close of his ministry. They were seemingly a very good church, but there are things that Jesus writes to address with them. Let's just look at the, the text. We just read in chapter 2, verse 1. Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he that holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know thy works, and thy labor, and thy patience, and how thou not count, cannot bear them which are evil. And thou hast tried them which say they are apostles, and are not and has found them liars, and has borne, and has patience for my name's sake, and has laboured, and has not fainted. Nevertheless, it's kind of a word you don't really want to hear in your report card, isn't it? Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Remember therefore from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent." But this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And we're just giving this closing. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcomes, will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. So this is just a short letter that Jesus writes. But there is so much in here, and we're not going to be able to do it justice this morning, nor do I intend to, but I want to mention a couple of things. Firstly, just from a prophetic point of view, we're dealing with the first church age seemingly here. This will take us from the time of the resurrection up to the end of the first century, up to the time that John really is writing this letter. And so many things we see characterized in that period of history. In terms of the parables in Matthew 13, it's where the seed is sown. The parable of the sower. You know, that some brought forth 30, some 60, some 100 fold. But this warning is given to this church that their witness, in essence, would be removed if they didn't get back to their first works. And we'll comment on that briefly in a moment. I just want to start, though, by just, just looking at the introduction because we're told, unto the angel of the church of Ephesus writes. Now, as we said already, this word angel, as it's translated here in the Greek, is angelos. It just simply means messenger. And as we've already seen in chapter 1, the messenger that is giving this message to John was not an angelic being. It was just another human, somebody who was in heaven by this point, somebody who God has entrusted to reveal this to John. And we, we see that as we looked in the first first week because this Individual, as a couple of times John falls down to worship just in awe of what's going on, and this individual says, don't worship me, I'm one of thy fellow brethren of the prophets. So it's not an angelic being. So the question here is, as we get to these letters, are we looking at a, an angelic being or a pastor, a leader in the church? Well, it's, it's interesting if we look at the information we are given. First of all, we are told back in the previous chapter that the seven stars which we saw Jesus holding in his right hand, are the angels, the messengers, to the seven churches. So whoever these individuals are, 
they're being held in Jesus' hand. But it's interesting because if we just look through the text, if you've got your Bibles and you're looking through chapter 2, if it's an angel, we've got some real issues. Because verse 2 just says, I know thy works and thy labour and thy patience, how thou cannot bear them which are evil, and has tried them which say they are apostles and has not. In what context or way has an angel or would an angel have been able to fulfil any of those things? And then verse 3, and you've borne and as patience for my name's sake and as laboured as not fainted. How could that be said of an angel? It doesn't apply. And then verse 4, even worse, nevertheless I have someone against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Could that be said of an angel? No, I don't think it could be. But as you go through and all of these letters, things are said here which very clearly can't apply to an angel. You see, even to the conclusion of each letter, the promise that's given, it doesn't seem to be a promise that would be applicable to an angelic being, but it's applicable to redeemed believers. So I am quite certain that what we're looking at here is the leader of the churches, the pastors of those churches, because of the context. Because why would God need to send via a messenger a letter to John to send to an angel? How would John deliver it? You see, it doesn't make any sense. But of course, if these are letters that are given to the pastors of those churches, it makes an awful lot of sense. Because what are pastors? messengers. That's exactly really the role of a pastor, isn't it? To be a messenger, to speak God's word to the people that have been entrusted to them. It's interesting, you know, you look in scripture and there's various roles that are given within the body. 1 Corinthians 12 makes it very, very clear that actually there's a a number of roles and ministries and gifts that are given out that we're actually all one body. It's not a, a hierarchy. You see, one of the, the things that we'll see in a moment is that this church is commended because they've hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans. The Nicolaitans. The word Nicolaitan, Nico is where we get our word Nike from. It's the, the Greek word, it means to conquer. And then we're familiar with the word laity, it just means the people. The deeds of the Nicolaitans were those who were trying to conquer the people. It was something that was going on within pagan religions. It would come all the way down from Babylon where you'd have an elite priesthood that would set themselves above the people. Or not so in God's church. The pastor's not above the congregation. We're one body. We all work together. There's no hierarchy. There's no rank. We just have different roles. And in fact, as Paul says quite clearly in a couple of places, but firstly again in 1 Corinthians 12 and elsewhere, that sometimes the parts of the body that seem to be least are most important. You know, that the way, the way it is physically. Well, that's the way it is with the, the Christian church. We find that there are various roles. There's the roles of deacons that are given. Those are roles of administrative gifts, in a sense. We see it very much in the book of Acts. Stephen is one of those of seven individuals that are called out to... Deal with practical matters. In a sense, in a, in a church environment today, such as we have here, very analogous to the role of those on the, the trustees, in a sense, of the church. It's dealing with the practical matters. But there's other areas that would come under that banner as well. You know, various roles of, of helping, of assistance. I mean, in Acts, we have that waiting on tables. That's all part of that ministry and that role. 
the role of deacons. They're there to, in a sense, look after the congregation in practical matters. Some of you already have gifts and ministries in that area. You also have in Scripture the role of elders. Now, elders are appointed by men. Because exactly what you see in Scripture, you find that Paul tells Titus to go and appoint elders in every city. Elders were appointed to work and serve. But you see, there's lots of qualifications you may have noticed in the prayer email we sent out last week. We need to appoint a new elder within this fellowship. So we need, we want to appoint a new elder. We think we should have more. It's, it's good to have that accountability. And elders are given specific responsibilities, specific tasks. They are to, of course, rule their own house well. But they're also to act in certain capacities in terms of teaching, instructing. They're to look after the spiritual well-being. So whereas deacons would look after the practical well-being of the fellowship, the elders are there to look after the spiritual well-being. In a sense, in a pastoral perspective. But then distinct from that is the role of pastor. And we find very clearly in Ephesians chapter 4, we're told that he gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. See, the word that we find in the Greek for elder is presbytos. It's where we get the word presbytery from. But then you have a different word that's used for pastor, which is the word poiman. It's a word that is translated literally as shepherd. And God has used pastors and elders in terms of the leadership and the pastoral care of the church. And I think it's interesting that we have these churches that are addressed here, that the Lord is, I believe, sending these letters to the pastors. You see, the pastor is directly responsible to God. And there's been a, a thing, and you may have heard these comments banded around, and it's nothing new. But some people criticize the Calvary Chapel style of church government, for want of a better expression. But you know, I don't find in any other church a more biblical framework. Because the idea that you have, and there's there's somebody joined our, or started following the, the church's um, uh, Twitter feed. And I, I looked to see what it was and who it was. It's, an, a ministry, it's a ministry um, called Moses Pastors. And it turns out that they set themselves up to criticize anybody that has a form of church government where they would have a pastor and da, 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 da. And they say, well, that's the way Moses did it, and that's, of course, Old Testament, and that's not the way we should do it, that's not the church. And I mean, They've totally missed the point. You see, this church here are commended for hating that kind of structure where you would have one individual who is putting himself above the congregation. But by the way, as an aside... I'd just like to point out that Moses was ordained of God. And the most frequent attack Moses had was by people who stood up and raised themselves up against the fact that he'd been called to that ministry by God. And it seems strange that people use that as a negative. It was a good thing. God did it to lead the people. But it isn't the same now. You see, we do have a very different structure within the church. And God has ordained that there should be every part doing its share. They're all together. But there are different gifts, and there are different ministries. So this church of Ephesus, the pastors, I believe, for all of these churches, are receiving these letters to bring to their attention the things that they were doing well, and in many cases, 
to highlight things that they were not doing well and to really try and get them back on track. You see, the pastors are the ones who answer directly to the Lord. You see, one of the distinctives, I believe, of the role of a pastor is that it is a calling of God. It's not something that people choose to do. I never chose to be a pastor. Some of you may have heard me say before that I, as I was growing up, as I started getting into Christian bands and going out playing, and then I started getting opportunity to go and speak in various places, I thought that's how the Lord would use me, to have an itinerant ministry, to go various places. That sounded quite nice to me. All the fun and unresponsibility. But here I am. And as I'm sure most pastors, certainly any pastor that I know, certainly within Calvary Chapel, the reason we do what we do is not because we want to do it. Of course, there's a lot of fun in what we do. There's a lot of blessing. It's such a privilege being able to come before God's word and prepare to teach. But we do it because we're called to do it. You see, I couldn't walk away from this church, even if I wanted to, because it's not about my desire to be here or not to be here. It's about the fact that God had put a call on my life. And I just knew it. And it's not something that I can ever walk away from. Some of you may have, uh, last year I sent out a link to a sermon that was given up at the, or a talk that was given up at the pastor's conference last year by an American pastor, Sandy Adams. Now Sandy's been in ministry for 30 or so years. And he said that he, through various stages of his, his role as a pastor, went through various times of challenges and struggles. And, you know, and as a very, very young pastor, he got called to lead the funeral or take a funeral for a, a young man who had taken his own life. He'd come back from Vietnam, he'd been messed up, and this young man had taken his own life, and his parents had got in touch and said, can you take the funeral? And Sandy said, you know, why couldn't God give me a really simple one to start with? You know, somebody that loved the Lord all their life and just passed into glory. He said he gets this very difficult kind of, he said, but that's the way God often deals with us. He takes us through very difficult situations and trials. But he goes on in his, his talk to talk about Snow Cone Man. Now, it's you and I, Ice Cream Man. And he said that there's a man that's got this job that he said he would just absolutely love. This guy strolls out of bed mid-morning, seems to have a lovely day, goes for lunch with his wife. Late in the afternoon, he goes out and hooks his ice cream trailer up onto the back of his car and he goes and parks it down near one of the football grounds, football stadiums in America. And he just there serves ice cream to the children. It's the young people as they're going to watch their football and whatever, baseball, whatever they're watching. And he said, you know, that's an ideal job, he said, because people are coming. He said, you don't have to deal with people that have got troubles within their marriage. You don't have to deal with people that have got into various lusts or addictions or, or people that are, are struggling in their walk with the Lord in general. He said, you don't have any of that. You don't have to deal with spouses that are arguing. He said, you just serve ice cream and ask them if they want hundreds of thousands of them. He said, it's a lovely job. And he's talked about some of the things over the 30 years of his ministry he's had to deal with. And he said, Stoke Man, he said, it's the perfect role in life. There's no stress, there's no pressure. He said, but at the end of the day, he said, given the choice, what would I like to be? A pastor of church or Snowcone Man? And he says, at the end of the day, he said, I have to choose pastor. He said, it's not a glamorous role. He said, Paul likens it to being an ox. You know, not a, 
super fast creature like a cheetah or something that's stealthy and sleek and but an ox, something that just plods on and treads and but he said the reason he carries on, has carried on through the years of his ministry was because he was called of God. You know, I would ask you to continually pray for me as pastor. Because it's not easy and the devil will do his utmost to attack any church at any level. But I can assure you that pastors get a huge amount of attack in ways that we don't even appreciate at the time. But at the same time, I urge you, as I've done for the last couple of years now, to keep praying for each other. Next week we'll look at more of what this letter's got to say to the church of Ephesus. And there's some wonderful things here. This church, in many ways, it would be lovely to liken it to ourselves. You know, Ephesus was a seaport. It was recognized for a maritime history. That's not a lot different to the area in which we live. There's some really good things that this church are commended for. But there's also a real challenge. A challenge to get back to the first love. That's not first in order of priority. That's first in order of significance. It's not saying you should love Jesus first and there's something else. It's saying that Jesus is first above and beyond everything. It's not that, because some of you here didn't meet Jesus first. You had other loves in this world. But the challenge is always that it's so easy to get away from the number one love in our life, which should be for us as believers, should be Jesus. And so next week we'll, we'll explore that. I encourage you to read through firstly, well, just chapters two and three, but particularly for next week, we'll look at probably the first few letters here and we'll just see what the Lord has to say. Remember again that each of these letters is what the Spirit has to say to the churches and it's given to those who have ears to hear. So next week we'll, we'll look and we'll see what the Lord has to say to us. For now, let's bow our hearts. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way you have established your church. Jesus, you said you would build your church. And it's such a privilege to be part of what you are doing. Lord, we acknowledge and we thank you that the church is a body and that every part is important and vital to every other part. There is no hierarchy except for the fact that you are our head and we are the body. Lord, help us to love each other. Help us to serve each other. And Lord, to seek and to look for ways that we can serve each other. And Lord, if we can't find anything practical to do, then Lord, let us pray. Let us pray for each other on a daily basis, lifting each other before your throne, even for the things that we don't understand. But Lord, there's plenty of things that we do know of each other and things we can bring to you in prayer. But Lord, most of all, we pray that we will be individuals in a church that loves you. Lord, speak to us this week. As we individually look over these scriptures and meditate on them, speak to our hearts, we pray. Convict us, Lord, if there is anything in our life that has become more important, that has become more of a drain on our time, our resources, that, Lord, we started to use as an excuse for not reading your word, for not praying. Lord, help us to quickly address and put those things to one side, so that as the writer to the Hebrews says, we may look unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.